We are back. It has been a year since the end of season one, and so much seems to have changed without anything feeling like it has. Does that even make sense? Before we get stuck into topics ranging from criminal accountability to media and fake news to art in conflict, it may be worth having a bit of a check-in on what has happened in the last year. To help us try to make sense of it all, it is our old friend and our guest from episode five of last season, Tariq Mujrisi. Tariq is one of the most prolific writers on Libya and someone who we go to regularly to understand what international actors are doing in Libya. He tells it like it is, and boy, do we need that. We recorded this episode in the early summer, and there have been a few new developments, including a ceasefire entered into by the GNA and the House of Representatives. Do follow Tariq on Twitter to keep on top of all of that. But for now, enjoy the episode. We're back. Season two. How do you feel about that, Marwa? I'm excited. We are embarking on a very exciting journey with all the uh, plans we have for season two. So let's take a look back. We established Libya Matters as a way to kind of bring nuance to the Libyan conversation, to refocus the Libya story by looking at justice and rule of law questions. And we wanted to reach those who know Libya and perhaps those who know it less or who want to understand it, but also to those who have a hand in directing its outcomes. So how do you think we've done? Do you want to know? I've got some stats for you. I absolutely do. So in season one, we had uh, 10,400 downloads. We reached 95. Wow, I did not know that. Right? There are people who are actually listening to this. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are people listening in 95 countries. Can you guess what the top three might be? I would say Libya, hopefully. Yes. Libya's number three. Uh, tell me. The UK and the US are the other two. It has been downloaded in 1,176 cities. Wow, that's impressive. The top one is Tripoli, the second is Tunis, and the third is Washington. So when we talk about trying to reach policymakers or those who have influence in Libya, I think, I think it looks like it's a good story. We're hitting them. What makes me intrigued is the several tens of um, downloads we've had in Arlington, Virginia, mm-hmm. um, and who might be listening there. <laughs> So it's a, it's a little bit um, overwhelming, but also means that we really need to get our act together for season two, Marwa. It's, it's a bit daunting, isn't it? Uh, but ex- exciting nonetheless. So should we jump right in? Yeah. So, so much has happened since our last episode uh, in October with Wolfram. Uh, not least a global pandemic, which means that we're actually doing this uh, remotely and not without its challenges. In season two, we have a lot to, to get stuck into. We will still be speaking to incredible guests to help us make sense of what is happening. And that's, that's what Libya Matters is all about, right? Uh, we aim to focus on the important parts of the Libya story that don't get covered in detail. But this time around, we'll also be speaking to people with firsthand experience of some of the issues we're discussing. We still try to debunk the simplified narrative on Libya. But we're, we also want to try and, and demystify some of the legal questions with our new LFJL Explains segment. This will also mean you'll hear from more of our amazing team at LFJL. So in this season, we'll, we'll explore in more detail some of the themes we started discussing in season one. With Carla last season, we looked at accountability in the wider sense and started to delve into specifics with looking at sanctions with Wolfram. In this season, we will look at questions of different types of accountability, including international criminal law and why the ICC appears to be so slow, 
alternative ways to achieving accountability, like looking at the aid provided to European by European actors to Libyans. We look at the impediments to accountability, like amnesties. We look at specific violations and their impact on people, including the prevalent enforced disappearances. We speak about the rights of internally displaced persons. And we also look at the role that art can play in transitional justice and much more. But before we get started, we need to catch up on what has happened since October. So this first episode, we are exceptionally bringing back a guest that we first hosted in, in episode five to help us unravel everything. Wait a second, Marwa. Is this just because you want to speak to him because you missed out on the first recording? Um, yes, I do. But also because he's one of the people that knows um, the most about all the little details of the political stories in Libya. Welcome back to Libya Matters, Tarek Majrisi. Welcome back, Tarek. It's a real pleasure to be here and an honor now that I know I'm the only one invited back. No pressure. Thank you so much for joining us. So where do we begin? Do you even remember what the issues were back in October? Can you maybe start us off by telling us where we are today as of the 22nd of June, 2020? Well, even that is a pretty big question. Um, you know, the situation in Libya has become so, so much more complex than even it was when we spoke last year, that trying to say where we are today is, could be four or five different questions. I mean, where are we in Libya? Thankfully, you know, the, the war for Tripoli is no longer in Tripoli. Um, the forces that were besieging the capital have been pushed back as of early June. Uh, and so the people of, of Trablis can sleep a bit easier these days. Um, we now have a fresh war that we're looking at, uh, one for the city of Sirt uh, in central Libya. Uh, on the international side, uh, Turkey has, has proven to be the best of the pack, for want of a better term. Uh, their brand of intervention, how they've come down in support of the government of national accord, have just completely changed the game. Uh, and now, you know, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, France, uh, Russia, they're all sitting there desperately trying to figure out what they can do next to ensure Turkey doesn't just take the whole pie, uh, which brings us a whole different raft of problems. Uh, in terms of any hope for accountability, uh, I think there's a vote today at the Human Rights Council on whether an independent investigation will be launched, which would be huge if it comes to pass. Um, but unfortunately, the powers that be, the powers that one would expect to bring the normative voice uh, to the mess, uh, and the, yeah, I run out of words to describe it, but the situation in Libya, uh, the Europeans and, and the USA, they're about as absent as they've always been uh, and making the same faux pas that they've always been making when it comes to Libya. So when we spoke last time in episode five, the actors that we thought were problematic um, or that were identified were primarily Italy, France, UAE, Russia. Are we still talking about those same actors? You mentioned Turkey briefly now and refer to it as the best of the pack. Maybe you can tell us what the pack looks like, if that's the best of it. And then, you know, where those actors that we thought were key are today. Yeah, maybe uh, best is not, the, is not the appropriate term. Um, I should have just said the most successful of, of the pack. Um, but it's certainly grown. On one side, you know, all the actors that you listed uh, are still very much there, present, uh, trying to secure their interests, uh, suitably ignoring Libyan interests in that pursuit. Uh, in addition to that, yes, you do have Turkey, who were a bit part player. Actually, to be fair, when we spoke last time, they had, they had still had an impact, just not the kind of massive uh, game-changing impact that they've had now. Um, I think you were starting to see more of a subtle role come back for the United States, though still in a supportive role. Um, 
Libya's neighbors are starting to have a, a bigger role than they might have once had. I mean, this time last year or when we spoke last time, you know, Egypt was very much the support act to the UAE. Now Egypt is, is trying to dictate proceedings in its own way. Uh, Algeria is back on the scene, having been distracted with its own internal issues for the past year. Uh, Tunis, Miskin, the poor country that seems to be perennially troubled by Libya, um, is undergoing its own political turbulence because of the situation in Libya and how all of these other international states want Tunis to, to jump in on, on their side. So, you know, Libya is becoming like the, the foreign policy or the international relations equivalent of that 1950s American B-movie, The Blob That Ate Everything. And if we come back in a year, we'll probably have three or four more countries to add to the list. So where does the UN, the UN fit in all of this? I mean, what, what, what of the Berlin process is it still relevant today? Um, and, and how do we imagine that playing out? I mean, the, the UN and the Berlin process are, are two slightly different troubled entities. I mean, the UN is, is like the poor kid that seems to be perennially shut out of everything now. Um, as the Europeans and the Americans and, you know, countries that tend to use the UN uh, as a vehicle for its policy become more and more marginalized. The UN is less and less present, less and less important. Um, and we move more into a stage where, where Turkey and Russia or Turkey and Egypt are directly trying to sort out problems between themselves. Um, and I mean, that's partially down to the fact that, you know, first, the, the UN just hasn't been protected. You know, whilst the war was going on, you know, UN, the airstrip that the UN used was bombed. You had bombs falling all around their, uh, their compound and nobody said a word. You had UN staff killed in Benghazi and, and nobody said a word. Um, and even if we take a step back to before the war started, I mean, the whole plan that the UN had put together, uh, the National Conference Plan, the principles of which I still think are the best way forward for the country, um, it was completely undermined by the very member states that are supposed to be supporting it to do its job. Uh, and it was driven into a path that led to war. So the UN are unfortunately caught between a, a very hard rock and an even harder place. And the Berlin process was... Another of these issues that started out as the UN's way to, to try to regain control over proceedings. This idea that, you know, it's very clear that the, the UN can't implement the policies that they want without other countries getting involved to the detriment of it. Uh, so they asked the Germans to try to, to bring some order to the scene. Uh, the Germans have tried. There's a very nice forum where, you know, everybody gets together and talks. It is great because the, the Turks and the Emiratis are on the same table for pretty much the only forum. But it, it's not much more than a talking shop. Uh, there's been no way to really to, to enforce whatever has been agreed upon. And, you know, to, to show you just how kind of um, how fragile the whole thing can be, you had this big Berlin conference in January. You know, everybody came together, uh, heads of state from across Europe, uh, the Secretary of State from the USA. They all signed this lovely communique. Um, which one of the main points of this co co communique was to say that we will uphold the arms embargo. And within 24 hours, there had been armed flights back into Libya. And, you know, everybody is very comfortable in their impunity. So the Berlin process alone, you know, it trundles along, but it's not going to change these fundamental factors unless the powers behind it decide to be a bit more forceful. I think, um, I think we... We've covered a lot very quickly, probably because of the excitement of, of being back together discussing all of this. But perhaps we can just take a step back and unpack a little bit um, what we're talking about here. Because if we think back to October when when we ended the last season of, uh, of Libya Matters, 
we were talking about this almost inevitable uh, fall, quote unquote, of Tripoli to the Libyan Arab Armed Forces and Khalifa Haftar and that his backers were so adamant that really there was very little that could be done. Uh, Turkey was sort of advising the GNA, but with no real kind of oomph behind it. And all of a sudden today, or not all of a sudden, several months later, we see a, a massive shift. And all of a sudden now we're talking about Haftar being held accountable in a real way, which was never discussed in rooms before. Uh, we are talking about um, Turkey being sort of the, the leader of the conversation, uh, the Turco-Russo element to it, Egypt um, to the forefront. So what happened? What was the cause of that shift? And and actually, you know, as a, I guess as a human rights person, um, none of these actors fill me with hope for Libya, right? None of these countries that are involved in the Libyan scene, no matter how good or bad they are on the spectrum, are those who really enshrine a concept or, or of human rights or really try to do things in a, in a way that is appropriate from that perspective. So all of them fill me with terror as the ones who might be dictating uh, or helping to author Libya's future. So can we try and explain maybe two or three key events that happened or something that shifted this so massively, the paradigm? There's, thanks for that unpacking. Uh, there's a lot to unpack from there. <laughs> and that, it's a useful reminder, really, because you can spend so long kind of in, in the weeds on Libya, as it were, that you lose sight of, of the bigger picture. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very useful to take a step back. I mean, I think first and foremost, let's look at Turkey, uh, because that's the big game changer here, right? And you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's all a spectrum. So on the spectrum of existing interventions in Libya, you know, Turkey received a request uh, for defense, really, from the government of national accord, Libya's internationally recognized, UN-recognized government, uh, and they, they fulfilled that. Um, you know, they came in, they stopped the Libyan Arab armed forces um, from entering the city, which would have been a, a hugely destructive um, bout of urban warfare. You know, God knows what it would have meant for, for the people of Tripoli, for the city of Tripoli. Um, and eventually, you know, their superior military strategizing or, or whatever X factor they brought to the table uh, was enough to, to push back the forces of, of Khalifa Haftar. But it's, it's all on a spectrum, right? I mean, Turkey were there uh, in April, May and June. They helped of, of last year. Uh, they helped the, the GNA have their first victory and then they disappeared from the scene. Um, if what they were really concerned about was the Libyan people and, and the morality of the situation and so on, they wouldn't have disappeared from that scene until the GNA gave them some very important economic concessions. Uh, and still, I mean, now that everybody's gearing up for a new war in central Libya, uh, there was a a delegation from, from Ankara to Tripoli just the other week um, that you know, was looking to, to lock in, as it were, a new series of, of deals and uh, gains and so on. So... Like anywhere else in this transactional world that we live in, um, the Turks aren't doing this for altruistic reasons. But on the spectrum, yeah, they've been the most effective and they've changed the approach of the situation. I mean, now I think is the first time in the last four, five, six years or so that you can speak about Haftar and the Libyan Arab armed forces and so on as, as kind of an imposition, as uh, an international kind of coalition, as it were rather than just trying to live up to this facade that it's a local Libyan endeavor and, you know, a Libyan response to, to issues and problems. And I think that brings us nicely on to the next thing to unpack, which is this, this issue of accountability. Um, despite everything, I don't think we're really any closer to, to having uh, an entity 
either Libyan or foreign, that is willing to prioritize the issue of accountability. Uh, and that suggests that we are just in for more of the same here. If we had this conversation like six, seven months ago, then I would say that every policymaker I speak to will say that, um, you know, trying to put sanctions on, on somebody like Hafta, despite him fulfilling the exact same criteria that other people have fulfilled in order to have sanctions put on them, you know, damaging the economy of, of Libya, there was an oil embargo. Attacking the capital Tripoli, he did that. Spoiling the UN process, he attacked the capital Tripoli 10 days before the UN process started. Um, they would say he's just too important. And the kind of background message was that we kind of think he's going to win, so I don't want to upset him. Um, and I, really, I don't want to upset the countries that are backing him either. But today, yeah, even when he's lost, even when that's not going to happen, you still see the same reticence to try and set an example, um, either with Haftar himself or others like him. Uh, now that the GNA have, kind of, have suddenly kind of switched persona completely from that, you know, um, the scared government trying to protect themselves to the ones who are trying to stamp their authority on the situation and are enjoying their ascendancy, you know, we've seen war crimes committed by, by forces under their watch. And still the entire focus is on that the Ministry of Interior is, is trying to set up a police force. Sorry, let me roll back on that and say this would have been the perfect example that the GNA, which has been embattled for so long, which has been trying to convince the Libyan population and the wider world of its legitimacy, this moment where they start to reclaim cities from Haftar, where they start to stretch their legs for the first time in so long, would have been the perfect moment to, to show that things are changing, that there is accountability, that when forces under their control commit war crimes or commit uh, acts of retribution or collective punishment and thievery and so on, that they will be punished. And so far, they've dropped the ball on that completely. Um, and no one is going to hold them to account for that. And really, they're not in a position to hold them to account for that because they ignored Haftar's war crimes for so long. And this is the, the kind of slippery slope of, of allowing impunity to occur. Uh, because once you allow it for one group, you then look like a hypocrite if you focus on, the, uh, an, on another group's actions. Um, and despite um, human rights and accountability supposed to have its own kind of section and given pride of place for the first time, uh, in the overall Berlin process, it shows that not, nothing really has changed except for the rhetoric that we use. I, I just want to just pause at a couple of things you've said, because actually one of the thoughts that's always in the back of my mind when we discuss these topics in Libya is, you know, there's that kind of famous, with great power comes great responsibility. In Libya, it's almost like with great power comes great impunity, right? Whoever is whoever's in charge gets more impunity. And what's, what's absolutely exhausting um, from our perspective is, we we have always called for accountability. We've always worked on this, understood. But the hypocrisy is, is beyond that because now you know in in rooms that um, Tariq that you and I have been in, now human rights violations are being quoted as a way to exclude uh, the, you know Haftar from the dialogue. Whereas before it was very much the yes, but that we'll look at that later. First, we need to get this deal done. You know, and and you need to have those who are influential at the table. You can't eliminate everyone. And now there's this political expediency to that elimination, and therefore we're quoting. Um, and, and actually, you know, that all undermines the, the importance of human rights when it's only being politicized in the way that we've seen, uh, and accountability being politicized in the way that we've seen. And I think that is the sort of big alarm bell for me. And when we've seen, like you, like you mentioned, some of the violations being committed by the GNA forces, you know, if you come out and call that and say, you know, we, we note violations are being committed by all parties or by all actors in this, etc. There's a there's a presumption that that's quote for you backing one side or the other, but wanting to seem neutral. And I think, you know, that's the battle that 
has actually been created by the culture in Libya, but also by the international actors by politicizing accountability and always, you know, using it as a as a tool as opposed to as, you know, as an end, really. That's the bit that I find very unsettling with this process, because we are now seeing the shift there. You know, there is a real sense of victors can do whatever they want and the GNA's perception that they are the victors. And where does that take us from here? It doesn't look good to me where we go from here on a, on that on that front um, alone. And again, I'll repeat that, you know, none of the countries involved in Libya have a record that is aspirational in terms of human rights. And so whoever then helps set Libya on its road to um, statehood and, and whatever advice they might give at that stage is also is also quite concerning, is it not? It's, it's very concerning. Um, I mean, I think there are two very good points there that are inextricably tied to one another. Um, the first is this idea that uh, you know, to the victor goes the spoils. Everything is a winner's justice. And you said you don't know where this might lead us. I mean, to be fair, we do know. We saw it in 2011. We saw it in 2014. You know, we're just going round and round the same sick merry-go-round. This is the, the fundamental problem with the current crisis in Libya. I hate to kind of try to distill something so complex, but I'm going to be that guy now and say that the one thing in common throughout the last nine years of turbulence is that whatever group wins feels like it gives them the, the right to dominate the other. In fact, the very essence of politics in Libya still hasn't moved on from Gaddafi's conception, whereby you have some groups who are the winners and some groups who are the losers. And the winners keep winning um, by keeping their foot on the neck of the losers. And it's this fundamental conception or approach um, to politics and to war and so on that means that we're not likely to exit the cycle anytime soon. I mean, the groups who fought for, for Haftar in Western Libya, uh, you know, as much as he likes to call them an army, are not these, you know, well-professional, uh, you know, they're not these well-drilled and trained units. They're the same groups from Western Libya who fought for Gaddafi in 2011, uh, who fought against Fejr uh, Libya in 2014. And they will keep fighting because, you know, if you go to Tarhuna, if you go to Warshafana, these districts in, in Western Libya, they feel that since the revolution came in 2011, um, you know, they've just been persecuted. So they're trying to get back what they had before. Um, and so they, you have this problem of, of, cyclical, uh, of cyclical harassment, which is driven by, you know, complete impunity by four military actors. And that's facilitated kind of by the international arena that you depicted. I mean, everybody thinks that they're Machiavelli, you know, playing this great game of realpolitik and so on, but they can't see beyond their their own nose. So we're willing to sacrifice any principle to make the next step work. You know, we want X to be the, the next step, which a year ago was a deal between Haftar and Saraj. So we're willing to sacrifice any principle in order to get there, not knowing that two, two or three steps down, down the line, this severely cripples you. Uh, it cripples your credibility. It cripples any sort of a process that needed to be in place. Um, and one of the core reasons for that is that nobody is trying to help shepherd Libya towards statehood. Everybody is protecting their own interests or doing what they think will protect their interests for the next year or two, um, you know, or the next election cycle. And this is one last problem, you know, that Libyans are so happy to, to outsource their state building, their nation building, their revolution, but nobody who they're outsourcing to really cares about them. Um, and so the country is being fleeced. Everybody is looking after number one. And that leaves the Libyans with nobody looking after them. So 
yeah, welcome to, to, to 2020. It's not the 1950s anymore. Most definitely not. But then this is where I would reiterate the importance of accountability because it is the lack of or the, this impunity that has allowed for this where we are today um, to happen, right? So if we did have accountability uh, in 2014, 2015, if there was the rule of law, then it wouldn't then have to march on Tripoli would be um, inconceivable, right? You can't if there was a, a system in place. You had said earlier, Tariq, uh, that we are now at a point with um, with the GNA and the and the armed groups that have carried out also um, atrocities on their side. Uh, that at this point we you know is is a critical point in in terms of addressing how how that is addressed you know and and looking at accountability for both sides and that this that strong message needs to be set that this is not. Uh, that this is not okay because it is only then that we can move towards um, some form of state building process otherwise you can put up the facade of, of, a, of a state by, by installing a government but at the end of the day we'll be back to 2014 Libya and not um, beyond 2020. Yeah I mean eventually you have to to win a peace if you want to exit war um, and this will be the new challenge in front of the government of national accord and i get the feeling it's going to be a challenge uh, in the international realm that's increasingly concentrated in in turkey's hands uh, rather than anybody else's and i agree with your overall point 100 percent um you know one of the reasons why things have gotten so bad is because everything that we would consider a norm that we would consider a standard either in terms of human rights the laws of war the laws of politics corruption they've all been decimated um over the last uh, five, six years. Um, you know, on some avenues, it was the, the, the militias and the government in Tripoli, most notably corruption. Uh, but that was matched by Haftar's side in the East. And in terms of military conduct and so on, some of the crimes that have been committed by what people call an army, what people cling to as an army, because they're so desperate for some institutional um, life raft um, to, to cling to in Libya, is horrific. You know, um, it's something you couldn't even put in a movie. It would be bad. Um, and so we need to stop the freefall. Uh, and so you can say now that the, the challenge in front of kind of those such, such as yourselves who work on human rights and accountability, but even those who work on, on politics and governance and so on, is to convince the government of national accord that accountability is in their interests. Um, and the kind of naive optimist in me hopes that, okay, if the government of national accord has one main sponsor, which is Turkey, Turkey's overriding interest is to have a stable government and to be able to conduct business. Then the argument that perhaps you can put forward is that business requires stability, business requires rule of law, um, and that you can try to convince people that it's in their interest to, to proceed along this path and not to make it a free-for-all. Um, but if that's the naive optimist, uh, the cynic who's witnessed the last eight to nine years, um, you know, is thinks that we're probably just going to see different groups and new uniforms and a continuation of, of everything we know today. Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. I know Marwa is going to pick up on the 
fact-finding mission in a, in a minute, but I just want to look at this interplay between human rights, accountability, and politics, because it just always seems like, you know, those people who work on this and those people who work on that. And, and I think that is actually some of the some of the weakness in this conversation, because it's, it's presumed that they work in, in kind of parallel and not um, not in tandem. And I think that's what, what I want to pick on, because the Berlin process, um, you know, one of the bits that produced hope for us was the fact that it included this human rights and uh, international humanitarian law basket. But it was very unclear for a very, very long time what that would look like, because actually, although that looks optimistic, um, because it's included, it also potentially provides the ability to compartmentalize human rights and IHL and have the political and security conversations, you know, happen in their own silos and human rights and IHL happen in their own silo. And you end up with some great reports from fact finding missions or the like, but that don't translate into the roadmap for the country going forward. And, you know, one of the things that we have been asking a lot in those rooms and talking about a lot is how do you ensure actually the UN's mandate of mainstreaming human rights and I into conversations of state building and peace building and not have it be this tokenistic gesture on the side. So the questions we ask, oh, will the human rights and IHL working group, whatever they're calling it, have oversight of the Uh, security process and the political process? Will they be able to attend those meetings and comment on them and raise concerns? Might they be involved in setting a vetting standard for who participates in those other groups and say, you know what, actually, we have a minimum standard of entry that if you are implicated in X, Y, and Z type of crimes, you are not at the table. Because to me, really, that's the only way that human rights and IHL become effective, that we end up genuinely mainstreaming these topics into peace building and end up in a result that doesn't repeat this merry-go-round that you mentioned, Tarek, or this repeated cycle of impunity, victor, impunity, victor, and, and, and so on, because you actually eliminate from the future, if you like, spoils those who have committed violations. But I know that that's me being naive uh, and me being kind of an idealist, but that's for me, that's the only kind of, you know, if you want to try and get some kind of positive outlook of how we get out of this situation it, it must be that that's what really the Berlin process's legacy could be but it doesn't seem to be that case because we're still talking about the same when you look at the security situation or the security process we're still talking about the five plus five as if those are the two actors still um, you're still talking about a political process that includes a lot of people in it um, who are really there to build their CVs for future postings as opposed to genuine political settlements or genuine peace building and so I, I guess what I'm throwing out at you is you know Yes, this looks promising. Yes, this is great. But how little or how much political will is there to genuinely give it a role that is transformative as opposed to one that just gives, you know, us NGOs that have been working on this for years, uh, like a nod and an acknowledgement? Well, that's a, a big question. Um, probably a difficult one to answer, one that's probably beyond my pay grade. Um, but Look, I mean, the, the the point you make is a really good depiction of this, this fundamental problem that I think everybody in our wider field faces, is that how do you make the jump from, from theory to practice? And, you know, the, the format of the Berlin process with the five baskets and so on, this, yes, this is a very logical way to set up a framework. Um, you know, you can discuss, you can lay out the kind of political hurdles, the economic hurdles, security hurdles, the accountability and human rights hurdles independently so that we're aware of what we're dealing with. But then it's incumbent upon whoever is, is carrying out the process to figure out the way that you tie them all together um, or to flip the analogy on its head. You know, the, the, the mess in Libya is like a great big knot. 
you can't just unravel it by, by focusing on any one of those particular issues. You have to make some political changes, make some justice and human uh, and rule of law changes that allows for some economic changes, that allows for some security changes, and so on and so forth. You have to keep pulling at the various strings. It's the person who designs the process or the entity that des designs the process that has to figure out how you take five baskets and turn that into, you know, uh, a multi-year process that can help Libya become a state and help Libya recover from the trauma of the last nine years and the trauma of the 42 that preceded it. That's the problem of political will that you mentioned, or just an unwillingness to spend political capital on Libya. You know, I think that the Germans took a, took a big step with the Berlin process and the Berlin conference. And, you know, they, they stuck their neck out for, for Libya. And unlike many other states, you know, I don't think they're really doing this for direct economic interests or for delusions of grandeur, um, like some other states are. Um, I think they, they, they saw very, a very concerning scenario unfolding quite close to them, to Europe's um, doorstep, and wanted to, to try to do something about it. But it's an indication of just how difficult it is to try to do something about it. You know, unless you want to be the country that's going to invest a hell of a lot um, in trying to, to handhold this country from a position of of chaos um, to something that resembles a normal modern state, then you know there's any 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 effort you make will never be enough. The Germans did a lot of work to put together this conference to bring together all these countries to give them a framework to work under, but that depended on all of these countries wanting to work together for the betterment of Libya, or at least you know to stabilize Libya. And as that's not the case, then unless the, the Germans then want to make another huge investment on Libya in terms of time, in terms of effort and resources and so on, then it, unfortunately it means that it's all going to, to count for nothing at the end of the day. Yeah, the question that remains is who cares enough about stability to try to put their foot down in Libya? Some would argue that uh, this is what Turkey is trying to do, inshallah khair, or the proof is in the pudding. Is, uh... I think, in my very cynical um, opinion, is that Libya has... For so long, there have been tools to address accountability. There have been tools to address the um, the violations, the arms embargo uh, breaches, and all of that. And so, when we're looking at political will, the political will has uh, is not there to actually end the the state of impunity that that exists that has led us to where we are today. And I think that you know we look at. The sanctions committee as, as a perfect example that was meant to it, it came out of of a uh, of a spirit of 2011 that no longer exists today the uh, re referral of libya to the icc the icc's lack of of uh, of i don't know what to call it interest or or or, or action or anything on libya to date um and we have been working for years for, for the Human Rights Council that is uh, meant to do exactly that, to look at the human rights uh, situation in, in countries, to actually establish a fact-finding, a, a, you know, an independent, irrespective of what it's called, what we wanted for years is an independent investigative body to look into the crimes committed in Libya. And this has been an upward, um, I, not even struggle, it's an upward battle that we have been trying to push for um, at every single Human Rights Council session, and they meet three times a year since 2016. So imagine what that has been like. There's been zero political will to actually, for the Human Rights Council to actually say, yes, uh, the situation in Libya um, is 
uh, merits a, a, a mission that can look into the crimes. So when we look at you know, the area of, of tools that are, that are at the hands of, of, um, of policymakers, the international community that can use, um, you know, that, that they could have used and can use to stop the, the violations, which again, uh, the way I see it is the underlying factor of any way forward, which is first stop the, um, the, the violations, stop the crimes, hold people to account that creates a deterrent for future crimes. And we, I can say that we have finally, uh, I don't want to jinx this, but today, as you mentioned earlier on in today's episode, Tarek, um, the Human Rights Council will be voting on a resolution that is meant to establish a fact-finding mission. Um, we are quite happy with, uh, with what is mandated in that resolution uh, for the establishment of the uh, of the mission, we would have liked to see something a bit more, uh, with a bit more uh, teeth. Uh, this body is mandated uh, under the High Commissioner for Human Rights to establish, so it's not necessarily its own separate entity. That's for technical reasons, um, but now it is up to the High Commissioner for Human Rights to establish something that looks um, independent and and strong enough. To, to see that this mandate is fulfilled. And that, I think, is where the heavy lifting will have to come in, right? So we finally got this body, but I think that what we need now is to see that this is taken seriously, um, that this is actually a, a, an opportunity to carry out the investigations that we need to see. Uh, the body is mandated to, uh, to look at the crimes and violations from 2016. It's very particular because that's when the last Commission of Inquiry report uh, was published, um, and and then to date. So, but again, your body is only as is is only as strong as as the power given to it, and so we are um, hoping uh, that this body will be given the resources, the power, and there is the political will to do that. And to it's a, it's a one year mandate for now, so we're hoping that it's that uh, again there's the political will for that to continue beyond the one year. Um, it is very unfortunate that every single you know um, that we always when it comes to human rights and uh, and accountability that we have to kind of pretext that with if the political will is there, right? So uh, the fact that our human rights and and accountability is is interconnected with the the political will, I think, is very telling in itself. It's a very good point. And I think that to try to, to play devil's advocate um, and give the argument that anybody who who's currently either working for the Office of the High Commission or for any of the nation states involved in Libya um, would give to you is to say that sometimes it's not only about political will, it's about it's about political capital and the knowledge or the awareness of the staff who are there and who are present and know how to spend that capital. I mean, regardless of whatever entity we're talking about, whether it's kind of uh, a multilateral institution like the UN or the EU or a nation state itself, you know, it's got its own guiding light and direction, um, which is driven by by certain principles. But there is only so much that it that it can do at any one time. So, you know, for example, with the UN. You have 
all of these different pressures put on it behind the scenes by different member states and saying, oh, you know, so it's not just about uh, Libya. There's country X and we know we were willing to help you on country X, but because you're going against our interests in Libya, uh, we will go against you on that. Um, and so even those with the best of intentions find themselves trying to balance, you know, because they, they're not Libya experts, they haven't worked on Libya for a long time, their lack of knowledge of the nuance and the detail of the Libyan scenario means that they make some very wrong decisions. Um, when we switch to the, uh, to the nation state example, you know, every country has its own interests, yes, but it doesn't always know the, the best path to reach that interest. Um, and sometimes I don't think it even knows where its interests are best served. And I mean, for all of us here today, how many times, for example, have we heard that, you know, Libya is just not worth straining the relationship with the UAE um, or some equivalent of that. Uh, now we have a completely different scenario whereby the problems with Turkey are greater than the problems with Libya. And that kind of speaks to the fact that this is all, this is one problem in a wider web of problems. And the desk officers or those tasked with kind of engaging and grappling with these problems don't always know how best to do it. Which means that for people like us, it's you have to give kind of relentless, a relentless push to always make sure that they are pushing in the direction that we think best serves an overall process. Um, and that's even to avoid the kind of self-reflection and introspection, which goes with, well, what if we actually highlighted the wrong things? And then everything is just compounded into error. And then we have an even bigger problem to unpick. But I'm probably getting too existential now. No, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I think, I mean, maybe I'm a bit of an idealist. I think that um, there are a lot of, of pieces at play. I agree. But I'd like to see um, the, the human rights and accountability be, piece uh, be taken uh, put in, in the core or the forefront of, of, uh, of the context for a change. I agree with you on that. It would be nice. Um, and I think, yeah, we're all, or I, I try to stay optimistic. But yeah, at the end of the day, we're trying to convince other countries to look after a third country. Um, and so in order to do that and to spend their resources, to spend their taxpayers' money, to spend their time, you sometimes have to play the cynical card, especially in this kind of day and age of political culture that we all live in, um, where people are all just playing the great game of politics. Sometimes you have to speak their language and try to play devil's advocate and be a bit more of a cynic in order to, to get to where we think is right. This is Marwa Mohammed again, and welcome to LFJL Explains. Today, I will be explaining the fact-finding mission, an independent body established to investigate human rights and international humanitarian law violations. Libya's most recent body was established in June 2020. Here are three things you should know about the fact-finding mission on Libya. One, it is an independent body established to investigate and document human rights and international humanitarian law violations committed as far back as 2016. Two, 2016 is not just a random date chosen, but in fact picks up where the last body ended in 2015. Three, a key feature about this body is that it will not only investigate and document violations, but is also mandated to preserve the evidence to pursue justice in the future. So here are three things that will ensure a successful fact-finding mission. One, give it a proper time frame to carry out its mandate. As it stands today, the fact-finding mission is meant to investigate violations from 2016 to date. 
Act with less than one year to do it. So it is important that the Human Rights Council votes to renew the mission's mandate. Two, provide the body with the needed resources, including staff and budget that will allow them to carry out successfully the investigations and documentation without delay. Three, full cooperation and unhindered access must be given to the fact-finding mission so as not to obstruct the process of investigations. Some of the stuff you've been saying brings me neatly to our uh, debunking the narrative segment. My first quote for you there is, Turkey's ambition is the real problem here. What's the real problem in the first place? Um, you know, as I feel like I might have been a bit harsh on Turkey for the rest of the show um, by trying to play up the transactional nature of their support and the fact that they have their own interests, which extend beyond Libya. But I mean, any way you break it down and look at it, Turkey effectively ended what would have been a multi-year messy conflict in the middle of Tripoli that might have even spawned even worse conflicts of its own uh, in places like Misrata afterwards. Um, so in a sense, Turkey's ambition has crossed off for us one of the biggest problems that we had, which is how do we build a process around Haftar's ambition or how do we negate Haftar's ambition you know, to try to put a political um, transition on track? The reason why this is brought up now is saying that it's all about Turkey and so on and so forth is because either Turkey has used Libya to annoy other countries like Greece or because countries which had banked so much on Haftar are now saying that not, not only have they completely lost out, but now their worst rival or their, you know, their worst nightmare, Turkey, is now in the ascendancy and looks like they might control or have overwhelming influence over the country. Um, and so we're left with this very reductive narrative that the big problem in Libya is Turkey. Um, whereas the big problem in Libya is that there is no normative power, that there is no set of rules, that um, you know, there is no political transition. It's just a game um, for all these different countries to use Libya for their own personal uh, interests. I know you said it's going to be a quick answer and not a rant, but I hope I got there eventually. <laughs> no, let's, let's try to make it shorter this time <laughs> for the second quote. What is clear now is that Libya is heading towards partition. This is one you hear a lot. Um, and I think it's just a very self-serving argument to make for people who, who feel like, oh, okay, my side didn't win. So now I'm just going to argue to cut the whole country off. Um, but if you just look at the mechanics of it, it wouldn't work. Um, the oil infrastructure, the water infrastructure, the energy infrastructure is all spread out equally across the whole country. So the only thing you change by trying to partition Libya into two or three countries and this is if you ignore all the huge headaches of actually trying to form a new country, is that you'll have three different countries at war with, with one another instead of a civil war within one country. Tariq, is there, is there something you hear that you want to deal with? Yeah, you know, one thing that, that starts to grate me more and more is that in Libya, it, it's all about the money, that every group only does what it does uh, because they're looking to, to get a bigger slice of the pie, which is the country's oil revenues. And of course, money always greases wheels and goes around, but it's so reductive to say that, you know, all of these, for example, all of these thousands of young men poured from all over Western uh, Libya to the Tripoli front because they wanted a slice of, of the oil revenue, or that certain groups have been fighting for the last five, six years because they want a slice of the oil revenue. Um, you know, it would also mean that all of your work on accountability and human rights is, is meaningless because grievance isn't, isn't a real issue. You know, there are so many issues and it's, it's just reductive and slightly orientalist to say, oh, you know, well, the, the Libyans can always be bought off. Let's just make sure that X, Y, and Z get some cash. Libya today is too polarized to uh, reconcile. I mean, it's never an, an absolute, and I always don't like fatalism, 
but the polarization is, is a massive issue. Um, the hate speech that goes on on a regular basis. You know, if you say something is a joke, like once or twice, that's fine. But if you repeat it on a daily basis for two years, three years, there's a bit of you that starts to believe that it's true. Um, so then when the time comes to, to make friends or, or to live together or to share, which is the biggest idea here, you know, how are you going to share resources? How are you going to share opportunity and development and so on? Then that becomes really difficult. And I think that's a, a massive problem that we haven't even started to look at yet because we're too busy just trying to put out the fire in the first place. Thank you so much, Tariq. Is there a question you really wanted us to ask that we didn't ask you? No, I mean, as, as, as ever, there's many things that we could have spoken about that we haven't. You know, if we're talking about big politics, we didn't really mention Russia. Uh, we didn't mention what fresh hell um, the countries who have lost out might have in store for us in order to, to try to get the, a new f- foothold back in Libya. But that's my way of hoping that I get invited back for season three, four, five. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, see you, see you season three, Tarek. Always a pleasure, Tarek. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Masiri. It is produced by Tariq Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Masiri. Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Malyanu, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. (laughs) 